working in an organization like Mint that you will never get from somebody who's dancing on Instagram. Who funds the influencers? Uh, we did a study, we did an article on this uh, a couple of months ago, and we found that typically it is the brokers. All of these influencers were busy selling it, were busy making videos about it. In some cases, pretending like it was like fixed deposits. Crypto came crashing down. Uh, a lot of small investors would have paid the price, but these guys made their money. So, so basically, there is nobody, nobody exercising oversight on whether a particular influencer has actually disclosed that they are being sponsored or not. Yeah. So I have made a ton of mistakes in the past. And probably a case study on how not to manage money. I can't do what Rakesh did because it takes a certain optimism of character to put 100% or more of your money in equity. You have to really believe that the stock market and the economy is going to do very, very well. Because most people don't realize just how powerful NPS is in terms of taxation, in terms of long-term compounding. The issues that I have faced in the past, redeeming too early, etc. You can't do an NPS. You, unless I'm Correct. 60, I can't, I can't pull out my money. And that's going to protect my money from me. Welcome everyone to another exciting episode of Talks with Dalat, where we aim to deconstruct the seemingly complex world of finance and empower our investors to take better and relevant investment decisions. My name is Varun Fatehpuria, and I am the founder and CEO of Dalat Wealth Management. Today, we have someone on our show who both personally and at a professional level have done a lot of work in educating investors all across the country about the importance of personal finance, perhaps a little more than us. So please join me in welcoming Neil Burate onto the show today. Neil is the deputy editor at Mint, where he heads its personal finance team covering mutual funds, taxation, insurance, and other relevant personal finance subjects. He has been in this field for close to over a decade having started his career with value research before moving on to firms like uh, Rupee IQ, Pesa Bazaar, and finally landing at Mint four years back. Neil also recently co-authored a book on the big bull of India, late Sri Rakesh Ji Junjunwala. Neil, it is a pleasure to have you join us today. Thanks, Varun. Lovely being here. Uh, so Neil, let's let's just get started by understanding your own journey. Obviously, you have held a cor- lot of corporate professional jobs before becoming a journalist. What really motivated you to join a news and a media firm like Mint four years back? And how has that journey looked like uh, as you have progressed through your career? Yeah, so it was quite by accident, actually, Varun. Um, I started my professional journey with, uh, with a semi-registered investment advisor in Mumbai. And that time I thought that my career would be essentially working as an advisor. Um, but once when I was researching, there was I spotted a vacancy at Value Research. And uh, it was my favorite website. It still is. So I saw, I thought, you know, might as well apply and see how does it work out. So Kali apply and they uh, called me for an interview and uh, and I got through. So then uh, things took a very different path because Value Research is a small company and Dhirendra uh, Kumar, who's the founder who's been in this industry since the early 1990s, he has a lot of experience. He directly supervises um, the editorial staff. And so that was my big lucky break in my career. Um, and since then, I haven't looked back. So since then, my career has always been about writing about personal finance, um, and Mint, of course, uh, was a dream as well. Um, in fact, back then at Value Research, the only paper I read was Mint. Um, 
So again, when that opportunity came to me, uh, essentially because my boss followed me on Twitter and she offered me the role, uh, I jumped at it and it's been fantastic uh, four and a half years. Great. Uh, and that provides a really good uh, segue, Neil, to our first question, right, about the rise of dispensing financial information online, right? You obviously have uh, uh, all these financial publications who are doing their job, but you have an entire new industry crop up in the name of influencers in the last two years due to social media, due to the penetration of the internet. Uh, something which was squarely the job of a professional. Now, suddenly you have all of these people who have come up and giving out uh, what should be done, what not to be done. And I think it was go good up until a point where I think were, things were in under in control. But somewhere along the line where commercial interest started to take over, I think all of these people sort of like, you know, got a bit sidestepped. So how do you really view the role of influencers in our society today? Is it more of a double-edged sword where it has helped people got onto investing, but I think it has provided them a wrong perceived notion about certain new financial instruments. Yeah. So I think there are two big problems with influencers today, and both of them emanate from how they are monetized. So I'm not going to go into so much about what they are saying, like whether they do clickbaity content or not, because we have freedom of speech in this country. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Um, but the problem comes with the money, always with anyone follow the money. So who funds the influencers? Uh, we did a study, we did an article on this a uh, couple of months ago, and we found that typically it is the brokers. The brokers provide links. So the followers, uh, when they click on those links and they trade through those brokers, these influencers get a cut out of every single commission. Okay. This, is, this is dangerous for the investors, it's dangerous for the ecosystem because then the influencers in incentivized to create another video uh, propagating risky trading, FNO trading, and get more cuts and becomes a cycle. That's problem number one. Um, problem number two is that influencers often do not disclose that they are being funded, that a particular video is sponsored. I am not seeing this off the top of my head. This is documented in <clears throat> on the website of a body called the Advertising Standards Council of India, or ASCII. ASCII looks into these violations, some of them at least, I don't think ASCII is able to cover the sheer length and breadth of these violations, but at least some, and they provide a nice um, snapshot of what's actually happening. Now, the problem is ASCII looks into them, investigates them, puts out its orders, and that's it. It can't levy a single rupee of penalty. So basically, there is nobody, nobody exercising oversight on whether a particular influencer has actually disclosed that they are being sponsored or not. And it's a free for all right now. Yeah, and, and that that sort of also, I think, I think just recently there was probably the face of an influencer put up right in, 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 in the front page of a newspaper, right? Where you had a big, again, um, a social media company sort of like endorsing uh, them in some form or the other, right? Uh, and again, we saw, I think if they stick to basic financial instruments, that's okay. But again, now you have all of these new age investor options, right? Obviously, you had crypto uh, so long as they're unlasted. And then you have invoice discounting, you have P2P lending, all of these things. And Mint, I know, and you personally have spent a lot of time actually unwrapping all of these new age investment options. So 
the returns obviously on paper looks good and so long as they continue to deliver that's fine but what really happens in the case of a black swan event like how do you view these new age investment options which is typically targeted towards i would say millennials people who can take on uh, more risk i fully agree i mean if you just think back a year year and a half ago crypto was big was massively in fashion all of these influencers were busy selling it were busy making videos about it in some cases pretending like it was like fixed deposits crypto came crashing down uh, a lot of small investors would have paid the price but these guys made their money so that is the problem with today's ecosystem right i mean uh, so 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 that, that that's something that i think uh, investors should ideally be aware of when they are investing into all of these new age investment options that obviously i think it looks shiny it looks extremely fascinating from the outside but uh, i think once you understand the risks that are involved uh, you will probably uh, second guess your uh, i would say uh, options uh, again something neat that i wanted to touch is you recently again have been traveling all across the country you know uh, providing all of these educational webinars uh, to people all across the age group uh what has that experience looked like because if i were to talk about our own personal experience someone who has invested even a good amount of money uh, sometimes the basic concept around you know what is the difference between a mutual fund and an sip tends to get lost right and really telling this out of all honesty that sometimes that needs to be uh done and explained properly what what are some of the eye openers that you for personally have experienced yeah so those are the two big challenges i face uh, two categories of people rather one category is first time investors who don't know anything and uh, who are actually the prime audience for influencers because when i speak i tend to speak at a somewhat technical complex level um, and i you know bring in risk i don't want to whenever i talk about let's say this fund has given so much return i always um, mention the periods where it has not so my my dialogue is for some somewhat sophisticated investors um and a lot of first time people think that there should be simple answers unfortunately there are no simple answers in finance everything has ifs and buts um that's one category the other category is people who expect a lot of return like either they run their own businesses and from there they are getting 20 30% so they are like yahan pe bhi utna hi milna chahiye nahi to aap kya kar rahe ho correct <laughs> so i was in surat recently and uh, talking to an audience there actually a group of doctors so very sophisticated audience but i think a lot of them were trading and they were used to um, at least in the short term some of them had made some money so i gave a very sober balanced speech asset allocation etc etc put you know even index fund would have given so much um, and i found that some of them were yawning like this was this was not fun exciting stuff right and then one guy came after me and all he gave was stock tips and call put option tips with full confidence that is stock mein tezi hai stock mein mandi hai jo bhi assessment hai and uh, the audience was eating out of his hand now the unfortunate part is that they don't realize that if he did know all this stuff he would not be sharing it with you guys he would have he made his own money by now so the the folks who claim to know how to make money in the short term they are selling snake oil but unfortunately people don't realize this yeah i mean unfortunately when we also go and speak to people and 
when we want to give them simple answers unfortunately people do not like simple answers like they like come and give me something exciting something which rises up 20 30% in the shorter term give me a stock tip give me something which can make me a lot of money in the shorter term right and and somehow along the way that sort of like the entire notion of being invested being disciplined gets lost like there is so much education around being disciplined being just investing through mutual funds if you do not have that bandwidth to uh, dabble into direct stock investing but um, i think unfortunately how the industry has really progressed over the last decade in our country people somehow still get a lot of excitement by you know uh, single stock trading right yeah. um and while we are at the topic of i would say again influencers uh, it is fair to say that you yourself have amassed a huge following on twitter right whether you like it or not i think something that you would uh, tell on that platform carries a lot of weight right as a journalist and i know and i know you that you do your work with a lot of honesty but how do you view your responsibility neil as a journalist you know that what something that you would be putting out there will you'll probably influence a a certain category of people so when you are out there how do you like deal your work with a lot of honesty yeah so i'm often called uh, influencer myself um, and i'm well aware of that but here's what i think separates me from the average influencer number one because i work in a large media organized media organization uh, outfit um, we have a strict separation between advertising and editorial despite whatever you know people say in in gossip or uh, chat etc media cannot be bought editorial views cannot be bought tomorrow if you give an ad in mint it's not going to change my opinion of you um, so that's point number 1 uh, point number 2 that separates me is i am a salaried employee i get paid for giving out news and analysis i don't have to sell crypto for a living whether or not i put out a single tweet it doesn't make a difference to my financial life and that allows me to think independently of my own incentives ki isme se mujhe paisa mil raha hai nahi it doesn't matter um so so that is what uh, i think separates me and and also if you think of organized media in general right organized media has a reputation to protect we are we, they can't afford to be fly by night because you know some of the big newspapers in india today they have been around for decades you know you can't if you rip off somebody in next in a short span of time they will not read you you will have so much bad press so so there is a certain amount of gravitas that comes with working in an organization like mint that you will never get from somebody who's dancing on instagram yeah absolutely i mean yeah i mean that that, that is something that as a as a journalist as a, as a media professional that uh, we have seen that the a lot of the articles that you guys put out on mint is actually very very thoroughly researched right it gives a very i would say unbiased opinion uh, to the audience in front of you so they they are free to choose whether that's something that is suitable uh, to them or not uh, so just shifting gears uh, neil a bit where i just recently mentioned that you also co-authored a book on the big bull of india right uh, how did that journey look like what was again the motivation behind uh covering rakesh ji again there is a lot of literature around him about how he has made money in the stock market over the last 2 to 3 decades what is something that was different what is something that you found out during the course of your reporting so you're right varun there is a lot of material about him out there he has given hundreds of interviews over the years if you just google him there are hundreds and thousands of articles but our book is the first attempt to systematically collate all that 
and present it to the reader uh, in one place. That itself I count as a very significant achievement because it's not if if you want to really know about Rakesh, you know, one stray video here, one article there is never going to serve the purpose. So that's point number one. The other is uh, what did we do? Right? How did we write the book? So we did not intend to write a biography. Um, one third of the book is biographical. That's true, but problem with biographies is they then tend to become like glorifying machines of that person. Um, especially when they are written with the approval or with the um, support of that person or his immediate family or friends, then they sometimes control the narrative. So we didn't go down that path. We wrote our book fully independently of uh, Mr. Trijanwala's family. Uh, in fact, they were in a state of mourning when we, when we were writing it. So they were in no position to talk. Um, we instead spoke to the people that he worked with uh, or who knew him closely, like Ramesh Tamani or Shankar Sharma. Um, and, and that was the biographical part. Now, the other two parts are uh, equally, if not more interesting. So the middle part is about the three stocks that made his money, uh, Titan, Lupin, and Crystal and three, three mistakes that he made. So stocks like the HFM. Then we went into the companies themselves. You know, what made these companies so great? What made the mistakes so bad? Um, and then the third part is the personal finance lessons that you can draw from his life. Because at the end of the day, any book should have some value to you, should have some takeaway. Um, and that is our takeaway from his life. Great, yeah. I think obviously there's a lot of respect for these financial I would say so-called gurus uh, in, in India and all across the world. And a lot of the retail investors actually tend to chase or closely monitor the, the, the positions that these investors have. So, Neil, while we are at it, I just want to uh, sort of also get your view on, obviously, at one end of the spectrum, you have sort of like the positions which are disclosed, what these investors are telling. But at the other end of the spectrum, probably I think a good advice for investors would be to not just closely and blindly follow or buy and sell what these, uh, uh, I would say, uh, the, the the big market participants are doing, right? Because you really know what the other side of the trade is, how have they actually covered the position? What advice would you have, um, I would say, for lack of a better word, to our audience today as to why closely and blindly following the, the, the market movements of these uh, financial uh, gurus are not a very good idea? Yeah, so actually it's along multiple levels that it's a bad idea. So number one, uh, their positions are only disclosed if they exceed 1% of a company's stock. Now, if they have distributed that position through numerous controlled entities or family members, there is no way that you and I can know. Uh, we don't raise every third cousin of Mr. Junjunwala or every fifth cousin of Mr. Rajiv Khanna. Um, so, so, and a lot of, I would imagine a lot of big investors who don't want their, want to be known while they're accumulating a stock, probably distributed that way, probably acquired that way. Uh, so that's point number one. Second is that it is reported with a lag. So it appears in the company shareholder register, I believe once a quarter. So by then they would have long ago entered and even exited. You never know, because again, that also comes with a lag. The third thing is we don't know why they are buying that particular stock. Uh, is it because they want to hold it for six months? Do they want to hold it for one year, three years? We just don't know what our outlook is. Um, and they don't owe it to us to tell. They're not fund managers. 
they can get out tomorrow and it doesn't matter at all for them right so all of this makes the cult of big investors a very poor way a poor strategy i would say uh neil recently you were the moderator at the mutual fund conclave right where you got an opportunity to again moderate a very good panel of speakers uh, and and one of the things that we observed was again the talk about the removal of indexation benefits with debt mutual funds right again it was called somehow the death knell for the entire industry when it was uh, the the indexation benefit was being taken away uh what is your current view today on why someone should still stay invested in a debt mutual fund as opposed to more traditional investment options like uh, fd returns are probably more or less the same today with uh, so why should someone look at a debt mutual fund today yeah so there are two big tax benefits that still remain with debt mutual funds one is that you're only taxed when you actually redeem the fund that's a lot that allows you to defer the tax for as long as you want to defer it uh the second is that because tax debt mutual funds are taxed as capital gains you can set off uh, them against other long term capital losses or gains or carry them forward for eight years um but still uh, you know in that panel i was asking a lot of the fund managers that what solutions do you have because yes there is still a bit of a tax edge but can you do better so one simple you know way to think about this is that currently let's say an investor has a certain portfolio split let's say it is 60 40 60 equity 40 debt that he or she is doing through two separate funds now if that person does it through a hybrid fund and maintains the same allocation the same purpose is achieved but in a more tax efficient manner because um, in case of hybrid funds um if the allocation in equity is more than 65% then it's taxed as equity and if it's between 35 and 65% then it is taxed in the old way of taxing debt which is 20% with indexation so to every challenge of law to every challenge of circumstance there can be solutions and the industry has come out with some solutions so uh, for example ashish somaiya was talking about white oaks uh, multi asset fund where where they're doing 35% equity and then the rest in other assets um and there will be more coming up i'm sure so it's a space to watch out for and a lot of distributors have to then now recalibrate their own thinking and their own clients portfolios that can we find the right product right something that we have also observed was if someone needs to stay invested for a period of 3 years then why do you sort of like you know take on a certain amount of more volatility so i think there is probably a fund today uh, which has a 35% exposure but the net exposure is sort of like hedged off through arbitrage positions so the equity exposure sort of like tends to be 0 to 5% okay. and then you have a debt and a gold uh, gold exposure to that so you effectively have a debt instrument uh, which uh, in the form of a hybrid uh so 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 again a lot of i would say uh permutations and combinations which the fund industry will apply to uh swivel away from this uh, uh tax uh, removal never never underestimate the power of financial engineer yeah absolutely uh and finally just me last question to you uh obviously you are surrounded uh, with a lot of people you have access to a lot of these fund managers and all of those things you get a chance to meet them how is your own view on money management involved right like when you started managing your own money let's say 10 years ago to what it is now how do you view your uh, 
uh, money management, uh, I would say, responsibility now. Yeah, so I have made a ton of mistakes in the past and probably a case study on how not to manage money. So mistake number one that I did in the past was F&O trading where I lost money, like 89% of traders do as per Shelby's report. Um, mistake number two is I used to get jitters every time some panicky event happened and I would redeem too much from my equity funds um, or I would not allocate in the first place. So I'm, you know, a lot of us have personality traits and my personality problem is I'm pessimistic. I'm deeply pessimistic. So I can't do what Rakesh did because it takes a certain optimism of character to put 100% or more of your money in equity. You have to really believe that the stock market and the economy is going to do very, very well. So, uh, so, so that's the other thing that I did. I have now uh, straightened out my own, I mean, after so many years in personal finance, I think I'm in a good place now. So I uh, invest about 50% of my portfolio in equity, um, much of it through equity mutual funds. Uh, a single equity mutual fund actually dominates my allocation, which I would not suggest to most investors because it's a result of my conviction in that fund. Apart from that, I do uh, invest in debt uh, through a conservative hybrid fund, again, of the same fund house. Uh, Parag Parikh, I've said this in the past in the public, so I'm happy to say it now. Um, and uh, I have some gold ETFs because, again, it rhymes with my pessimism about the world. Gold does well when things go kaput. Um, it's a little suboptimal because gold, sovereign gold bonds would pay me interest on top of the uh, gold bonds. But I just like the ease of transacting in, in gold ETFs. Um, and then I allocate to NPS. So this is the part that I'm most proud of because most people don't realize just how powerful NPS is in terms of taxation, in terms of long-term compounding. The issues that I have faced in the past, redeeming too early, et cetera, you can't do in NPS. You, unless I'm 16, I can't pull out my money. And that's going to protect my money from me. Um, so uh, there is that, then there is a tremendous tax advantage. So again, we were just talking about the debt fund tax. Within NPS, when you rebalance between equity and debt, there is no tax, as long as it's inside the NPS wrapper. Um, that's the, the one of the big points that I go on harping on, emphasizing when I go for all of these seminars, please look at NPS. Nobody will sell NPS to you because the commissions are so low, but this is for you to understand and participate. Absolutely. I think, I think uh, again, this is something that we have also experienced in our own capacity as wealth managers, that the lock-in period of investment options, whether that has to do with an ELSS or a PPF or even NPS for that matter, it somehow works in the favor of the investor, right? Because I think sort of like an out of sight, out of mind, no matter what, you'll not be able to redeem it. No matter what, I think whatever downturn comes, I think that you'll not react to those situations. And so, somehow that is, that is I would say, intuitively makes sense. But we get so lost into all of the noise that is around us about, you know, trying to make sense out of every literal macro event or micro event that is happening, that we somehow feel that we are some big investors who have, you know, uh, a better sense of understanding as to what's happening in the market as compared to uh, someone else. Varun, there's a beautiful story in Greek mythology about this. So when uh, Odysseus and his companions were returning from the war in Troy, uh, there was a part of the sea where 
uh, it was known that there were creatures called the sirens who would sing and sailors would listen to their voice and they jump into the sea and, and then perish. So the way they dealt with that issue is they chained themselves to the mast and waited for the ship to pass the siren and then got on with their life. So the NPC is a bit like chaining yourself to the mast. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think obviously it is a fantastic uh, investment option that the government has actually modeled uh, after, I would say, the retirement options in a country like Singapore or even the 401k in the US, where you need to sort of like force investors and uh, savers in the country to basically stay invested up until their retirement age. But uh, thank you so much, Neil, for doing this. I think it was lovely having you on our show today. Uh, for all the viewers and listeners, please do follow Neil on Twitter and his commentary and journalism. I think the, the, the team at Mint does a great job in giving you a very unbiased opinion about whatever is happening in the world of personal finance. You will not see them, uh, you know, getting influenced or just taking out a story for the sake of it. And for the viewers and listeners today on our show, uh, do feel feel to subscribe to our uh, channel uh, if you liked it. Uh, thank you so much, Neil, and we look forward to connecting uh, with you soon. Thanks, Varun. Very kind of you.